Hi church, I'm Ben Kim, and our scripture reading today comes from James chapter 4, verse 13, to chapter 5, verse 6. This is the reading of God's word. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you're new or visiting for the first time, our church has been working through the book of James. Uh, it's been extremely convicting for me personally to preach through this book. And I just feel like it's so pertinent to our present moment. You know, if there were ever a time for the people of God to put their faith into action, which is what James is all about, I believe that time is now. In fact, the whole premise of this book is that there's no such thing as a faith that doesn't act. There's no such thing as a faith that doesn't affect every facet of our lives. You know, whether we want to admit it or not, we all believe in something. And we will organize our entire lives around that thing. And James in this letter is giving us a picture of what a life organized around the gospel actually looks like. You know, if you remember in chapter 1, we read about how the gospel changes the way we face trials. In chapter 2, we read about how the gospel changes the way we view and treat people. In chapter 3, we read about how the gospel changes the way we speak to one another. And then last week, we looked at how the gospel shapes the way we navigate relational conflict. And up to this point, honestly, you may have been nodding your head in agreement with everything James has said. But today, we're talking about the thing nobody wants to talk about, certainly not in the church. We're talking about money. And if there's one thing we don't want anyone to touch, it's our money. Jesus, you can have a say in how I treat my husband or wife. You can have a say in what career path I take. You can even have a say in what I do with my body. But you will not touch my bank account. Now I'm gonna get in trouble for this story, uh, but those of you who know my wife, Carol, knows she has a huge sweet tooth and she doesn't discriminate when it comes to sweets, uh, but she has a soft spot for Kit Kats, okay? And she has this little secret stash of Kit Kats in our freezer that nobody knows about. And I remember a while back, uh, we had some guests over, and when people come over to our place, uh, they know we're always stocked with desserts. And one of our friends said, hey, can I grab something from your freezer? And Carol said, oh yeah, of course. Our house is your house. And so they open up the freezer and they're digging around, and immediately Carol says, Oh, but just not the Kit Kats. Been saving those for a while. You can have anything else in there, just don't touch my Kit Kats. And kind of a comical story, 
But this is kind of how we feel when it comes to our money, isn't it? We invite Jesus into our home. We say, our house is your house, but just don't touch my money. And Jesus says, I'm sorry, it doesn't work like that. You want to follow me? Lay down your life. You know, I think about the story of the rich young ruler in Luke 18 who goes up to Jesus and asks, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, Keep all the commandments. And the man says, I have kept them. To which Jesus replies, Oh, but there's one thing you haven't done. Go sell all your possessions and give your money to the poor. And we know what happens next. It says, When the rich man heard this, he became very sad. And that's such an interesting detail that we find in that text. Like, it's one thing to say, nope, sorry, Jesus, not doing that. But why was the man sad? It's because he actually loved Jesus. He was probably like many of us. Went to church all his life, served on the praise team, maybe a community group leader, respected man in the community. But when it came down to it, as much as he thought he loved Jesus, he loved his money more. And this is where we get Jesus' famous line, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And James picks up on this, and it's like he was saving it for the end of his letter. This idea that perhaps the biggest litmus test for the genuineness of a person's faith is his or her relationship with money. Twice in our text today, James addresses those with money. First in verse 13, he says, now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. And then at the beginning of chapter 5, he's even more direct. He says, now listen, you rich people. I mean, imagine if I opened my sermon like that today. Now listen up, you rich people. I mean, James never pulls punches. And in case some of you hear that and say, well, thank God I'm not rich. I guess this sermon doesn't apply to me. I would argue that by very nature of the fact that you live in America, by very nature of the fact that you own the device on which you are watching this live stream, you are richer than most of the world. Now, I know it's hard to believe that, especially when it feels like we're living paycheck to paycheck, uh, when sometimes we're not even sure if we're going to be able to pay the bills that month. But according to an article published in the Washington Post back in 2018, Americans, more than anyone else, profoundly underestimate how rich they are compared to the rest of the world. Uh, they basically took a group of Americans and they asked them to estimate the median income of the typical person in the world. And based on the responses, the group basically guessed that the average annual income of a typical person in the world was probably somewhere around 20 grand a year. Well, they were shocked to learn that even after adjusting for cost of living, that the average annual income of a person outside the U.S. today is $2,100 a year. Now, here's the crazy thing. The article states that even after learning these facts, there was zero change in respondents' attitudes toward their own wealth. Those who felt poor still believed they were poor. In other words, they were de delusional about their own wealth. And so all this to say, whether we want to admit it or not, when James says, listen up, you rich people, he's not just talking to a select group of people within our church. He's talking to all of us. And we're going to look at three things today if you're taking notes. Number one, the futility of wealth. 
Number two, the danger of wealth. And number three, true wealth. Okay, the futility of wealth, the danger of wealth, and true wealth. First, the futility of wealth. Uh, listen to what James says in verses 13 and 14. He says, Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Here, James is asking that huge existential question all of us have asked at some point in our lives. He says, what is your life? What is the meaning of your existence? All of you out there going into work every day, studying for that degree, saving up for retirement, investing in stocks and real estate, what is your life? He says, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Like kind of a depressing thought, but one that is found throughout the Bible. That all these things we work so hard to achieve, all these things we plan out so meticulously, all these things we think are forever at the end of the day are nothing but a vapor. Here one moment and gone the next. You know, these days, um, it's been so sad uh, for me when I think about how quickly my kids are growing up. It's like in the blink of an eye, my kids who were once these tiny nuggets uh, are now walking and talking and dressing themselves. And on one hand, it's great because they don't need us to do everything for them anymore. Uh, but there are these moments when I look back at old pictures and videos of them uh, and I realize we're never going to get that back. It's as James says, a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And we know this is true of everything in our lives, and yet there's something about our money that we think is forever. That if we just make the right moves, that if we just invest in the right things and plan everything to the T, that somehow our money will never disappear. But all it takes is a year like 2020 to remind us that even our most rock-solid plans are never as rock solid as we think. Like I thought I had year one of citizens mapped out perfectly. Didn't go as planned. I know many of you had your wedding days planned out to the minute. Didn't go as planned. Some of you launched new careers and opened new businesses this year, never imagining what 2020 would bring. We know James is right. We don't know what will happen tomorrow. Now, obviously, uh, this doesn't mean we shouldn't plan out our lives. It doesn't mean we shouldn't save up for retirement or start a college fund for our kids. But James is saying, be careful not to buy into the lie that you are somehow in control of your life. You know what he calls this kind of mindset? It's right there in verse 16. He calls it arrogance. It's believing you are where you are because you planned it out perfectly. It's boasting in your education or your vocation or your read on the stock market. It's finding security in yourself. And James says, not only is that arrogance, it's evil. And in verse 15, James tells us what the proper mindset should be. He says this, Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. If it's the Lord's will. Because none of us knows what the future holds, all we can do is trust in the will of God. He's saying, look, I know money makes you feel safe. 
I know it makes you feel strong and accomplished, but you know what? It's an illusion. It's like a mist. It looks solid, but when you try grabbing it, there's nothing there. You may think you're building a picture-perfect life for yourself. Uh, you may think you have considered all the maybes and what-ifs and just-in-cases. But when we attempt to build our lives on our wealth, he says we will be met by disappointment and tragedy. Which brings me to the second point, the danger of wealth. Okay, listen to how James opens chapter 5. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Notice, James doesn't say weep and wail because of the misery that may come upon you. He says weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Meaning there is no hope for the person who builds their lives around their wealth and status and power. He says the same wells that have been a source of security for you will at some point be a source of misery, pain, and embarrassment. As the great philosopher Notorious B.I.G. once said, Mo money, mo problems. Right? James says the danger of believing that your wealth is eternal is that you will begin to live a life of hoarding. Notice the imagery he gives of moths that have eaten your clothes, of rotting wealth. I mean, think about it. What are the things that rot? The things that we don't eat or use. Like everyone knows who know, uh, everyone who knows our family knows that our fridge and pantry is where food goes to die. Okay, like we're the type of people that go to Costco, buy the most random stuff, thinking we're going to eat it at some point, right? We never do. And yet we keep buying it just in case. And don't judge us because I know your pantry uh, looks just like ours. Uh, but even James's reference to gold and silver corroding is so intentional, right? You know what makes gold so appealing to people? It's supposed to never corrode. So when James uses this metaphor, he's saying even the things that you think will never fail you will at some point destroy you. Like how many more examples do we need of people who sought happiness in their wealth, who reached the pinnacle of their industries, who amassed more money than their kids and grandkids could spend in a lifetime, and yet who ended up completely empty and alone? Too many to count. And not only will hoarding wealth bring misery to ourselves, James says it will bring misery to everyone around us. Notice what he says in verses 4 and 5. He writes, Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. In other words, when we begin to tie our happiness to our money, we will do whatever it takes to get more of it. We will exploit and take advantage of people. We will sacrifice our families and friends if that means moving up the career ladder. We will manipulate and lie and steal just to feel a little bit more secure. And James says, you know what that's like? Take a look at verses 5 and 6. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. I mean, that's some vivid imagery right there. Right? Back then, uh, you know when they would fatten calves? 
It was the same day those calves would be slaughtered. And he's saying, you're fattening yourself on all this money, not knowing that a reckoning is coming. You keep saying you're not quite where you need to be yet. You keep saying there's still more money out there to be made. You keep saying what you have is not enough, not knowing that at some point, if you keep hoarding everything for yourself, if you keep your hands closed and refuse to be generous to others, the rug is going to be pulled from underneath you. Some pretty harsh words there, and if you feel uncomfortable, that's his point. Well, so what do we do? Like, how should we view our money and our possessions? Uh, because we know these things in and of themselves aren't bad. You know, that job you have that puts food on the table and provides for your family, God gave that to you. That house you were finally able to save up enough to buy, that's a gift from God. Well, then how do we get to a point where we stop confusing the gift from the giver? And this brings me to the final point, true wealth. Okay, now this might seem overly simple, but the only way we don't live like the kind of person James describes in chapter 5 is to get to a point where we truly believe we already have everything we need. You know, it's funny, the language we often use when we plan out our lives meticulously, when we watch the market obsessively, when we break our backs at work at the expense of our loved ones, the language we use is that we're doing all this for financial freedom. That doesn't look like freedom to me. That looks like bondage. That doesn't look like someone in control of their money. That looks like someone whose money controls them. I say this all the time, but true freedom is not being able to have everything you want. True freedom is being able to say no to the things you don't need. To feel so rich internally that you don't need anything else. Well, why is it so hard for us to get to this point? And I'm going to give us two reasons. Number one, we have an inflated view of ourselves. You know why it's so hard for us to let go of our money? You know why we don't like the idea of Jesus telling us what to do with it? Because there's something in us that really wants to believe we earned it. That the reason we got to where we are today, the reason we live in the house we live in, the reason we drive the cars we drive, it's because of our hard work. It's because of our effort. And we just conveniently skip over the fact that we were all born to a specific set of parents in a specific time and place, with specific temperaments and dispositions, that they, we were all given access to certain educational opportunities, that we just happened to meet certain friends and mentors along the way, but somehow we earned it, right? So number one, we have an inflated view of ourselves, but number two, we have a deflated view of God. You know, when we hoard and clutch our wealth as if our life depended on it, we diminish the overwhelming generosity of our Heavenly Father who desires to lavish His children with good gifts. I'm reminded of Matthew 6 when Jesus says, Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Like, do you really think this God who holds the universe in the palm of His hand will not provide for His own children? 
you know, last week uh, after dinner, my daughter asked me if she could have dessert. And I said yes, and I gave her a bag of cookies. And uh, like clockwork, like all annoying younger brothers do, I watched then as my son, like a vulture, walked over to her and went for a cookie in her bag. And immediately she pulled the bag away and said, that's mine. And of course, I said what every parent would say in that situation. I said, hey, share with your brother. And she said, no, it's mine. And I was like, excuse me? It's yours. Did you pay for that bag? First of all, you can't even eat every cookie in that bag. And second, I have like 10 more of those in our pantry that's also full, full of a, a lot of other stuff. And you're saying you can't share with your brother? Why, because you think I won't give you more cookies? Who do you think I am? Do you not know how obsessed I am with you? Do you not know that there is no length I wouldn't go to provide for you? Friends, do you see the foolishness and arrogance of a mindset that says this is mine? Do we not know who our Heavenly Father is? Have we forgotten the lengths He went to to save us? Do you realize that we worship a God who had all the wealth and power in the universe, yet emptied Himself and made Himself nothing for our sake? Philippians 2.6 says, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be used for his own advantage, something to be exploited. Do you know how ridiculous this picture of God looked to people back then? In that world, gods did not act this way. The rich and powerful did not act this way. The way of the Roman Empire was domination. If you had power or authority or wealth, you held on to it. You exerted it. You maximize it because not taking advantage of your wealth was a picture of weakness. And yet Jesus shows us a profoundly different way of being. He shows us that the way up is down, that it is better to give than to receive, that to save your life, you must lose it. As Jesus himself says, what good is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? Friends, if we just realized who our God is, that we have everything we could ever need in this life because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we wouldn't live with closed hands. We wouldn't live in constant fear and anxiety that our investments are gonna tank, that our families aren't gonna be provided for. No, we would realize that in Christ, we are already rich beyond our wildest imaginations. That all the satisfaction, validation, security, and acceptance we think money will bring us has already been granted to us freely in Jesus' name. So brothers and sisters, may we learn to live with open hands for the things that are eternal, for a prize that will never corrode or rot or fade away. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for this word today. Uh, we confess that all of us are enslaved to money. And if we're honest, uh, as much as we read the story of the rich young ruler and say that would never be us, we know how much of a hold the pursuit of wealth has on our lives. God, would you help us to see how temporary and fleeting the riches of this world are, but even more than that, help us to see the eternal treasure we have in knowing Christ and being known by Him. Help us to see our lives and everything we have as a gift of your grace. We thank you for your unfailing love and generosity toward your children. We entrust our hearts and our lives to you. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.